Welcome to Pod of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps uh, between church and contemporary culture uh, with a, a blend of mission apologetics, evangelism and all sorts of other things thrown into the mix. I'm Aaron Edwards and I'm joined by fellow podcastees Andy Bannister and Michael Otts. How are you gents doing today? Doing yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. I should, I, I, that's always a problem with the whole, when I say, when I ask a question to both of you, I'm bound to get a, a, a combined response. Of, of, combined, yeah, there's a bit of a stout response there, but again, go on, go on, Michael. There's a two-second pause where we're both waiting for the other person to speak, and then that point where we both speak at the same time, which I'm sure our podcatcher recording program struggles to, to cope with. Absolutely. I'm sure that doesn't happen on American podcasts, because, you know, it's the British thing to be like, oh, no, after you, after you. We're good at queuing, aren't we? <laughs> That's it. That's That's it. How are you, Andy? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking, Michael. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, like, you guys just chat amongst yourselves. That's no, funny. I'm doing great. We're off on a we're off on a well, sort of combination of holiday and a writing break tomorrow. So, um, so I'm excited to getting away Ooh, from the north. What are you writing? A book. It's this thing with with pages and, and words. Wow, in. Wow, amazing! What, but a book that people actually read and can afford. I don't. You know, well, I'm, I don't know whether other people actually read read them or just buy it because it looks good on the bookshop. No, so I'm writing a book called um, How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot which is a talk I've been giving for the last 10 years. And, uh, and so as an American publisher finally persuaded me to, to actually write the book. So, uh, so yes, it's a bit scary because I spent the last four months kind of you know, procrastinating and now I actually need to start doing some writing. So this summer is a bit of writing and a bit, a bit of vacation. And uh, if all goes well at the, end of the, at the end of the summer, Michael Otts and I will even end up on a hilltop together somewhere in the Lake District. Well, and no more context needed for that. We'll leave that, that as yeah, it is. Hanging out there. What are they doing? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> We're recording uh, a podcast, maybe. Recording a podcast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Podcast. We hope so. And we, we need to do a walking podcast sometime. I think we and Michael were talking about that, weren't we? Uh, Plot of the Gaps, you could call it. Plot of the Gaps. <laughs> there we go. Look at that. This, it didn't take long. It took two minutes and 11 seconds for the first banister pun to rattle its way in that's superb yeah. so um how are i mean what, what have you guys been up to this morning well this morning this is interesting you should ask this because we're recording this at two o'clock for listeners who are listening to this sometime in the future and this morning i i innocently turned on social media and i had it i headed over to twitter and i was hanging out and aaron lo and behold i saw you quite quite busy <laughs> on social media this morning you were having a little kind of internet spat uh, with uh, with with Steve Chalk, yeah, that was quite. It was it was quite fun, really. He doesn't normally reply. Um, it was a, an interesting one. He 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 posted something again about gay conversion therapy, which is one of his uh, the ban- banning gay conversion therapy as one of his sort of hobby horses of the moment. Um, and I just put something on there. My thing I've said to you know we mentioned this on our episode. If listeners are interested, we've got a whole episode on on um, what's the problem with gay conversion therapy. I think we called it. And um, I think, yeah, the point that I was making to him in, in the debates that I've had with him previously, I just reiterated uh, about the issue of separating prayer off actual prayer, consensual prayer, which he was he's calling everything coercion, basically. So I kind of just popped in on that. And it was just interesting. It, it, he then responded and then all of his acolytes came and started, you know, bashing me on the head. Twitteristically, uh, and, I, and I go back, and so I've got seventeen notifications to work through, and various sub threads to kind of respond to. But I, I'm not, you know, as I said, I'm not a huge uh, Twitterer um, in terms of getting involved in too many debates. I try to where I can, and this was one way it just seemed to. I wouldn't say explode, we'll just say it's sort of a, a smattering of uh, of events that occurred with it. But it did lead us into thinking about this issue of 
Steve Chalk, we've mentioned before a few times, and we don't mean to kind of be overly mean to him and pick on him, but he's a quint he's the quintessential British evangelical example of what we call what we call in this um episode when Christian leaders go woke. Um and it's something where We've we've seen this a few times. It's a very prominent thing. We can talk about it in the, in the American evangelical sphere, which we'll probably get to. But it's a particular issue, isn't it? That that we get these po- prominent public intellectuals, not necessarily intellectuals, but um, they have some kind of platform. Um, and over time, something happens. Something changes in the way they go about their business. I mean, Andy, you've you've, you've got some previous uh, with Steve Chalk. Would you want to kind of enlighten us as to? His own journey into this. Steve, Steve, Steve talks interesting because I've seen no is too strong, but I, but I, 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 you know, Steve and I have some previous because 20, well, more than 20 years ago, and actually shows my age. When I was 18, I did a, I did a gap year and Oasis Trust, which is the, was the, was the, was the, the charity that Steve kind of has set up and run over the years. They run a, a gap year called Frontline and they put you together in teams of three or, you know, teams of sort of up to four. Uh, young adults and you were sent off to you know random remote parts of the uk there to do you know kind of ministry for a year and it was an amazing experience i was paired up with uh with three other folks and sent to sunderland other end of the country from where i lived and i just learned so much loads about about god and about myself tried my hand at so many different forms of particularly youth ministry and steve you know would often come through preaching and huge influence on me, his passion for Jesus, the, the passion when he when he spoke, his commitment to the to, to, to the gospel and to getting young people into mission, it was just phenomenal. Um, but then, what was interesting over the years as I've kind of tracked with him, read his books, and followed his stuff, what was interesting is watching the slide mm-hmm. beginning that that a lot of those more missional things got got dropped. Oasis Trust doesn't do things like frontline teams and frontline mission mm-hmm. anymore. It is mm-hmm. shifting. You know, the gospel bit has got well, the proclamation part of the gospel has got dropped. And and so I know Oasis came increasingly just about social action, and now even I would argue that's beginning to slide and 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 align. And really now it's about hashtag justice and campaigning for whatever issue mm. is a uh, is second, uh, you know, is there on Steve's mind. And I think there's a there's a whole number of things we'll explore because Steve's trajectory I think is represented by by others. I think one of the things that I find interesting, and this comes up in others, we can mention Rob Bell, Brian McLaren uh, would be another. The slide is an interesting word because I do think, and at the time I had friends who said this and I resisted and pushed back. Now I agree with them that I think what's happened is once you lose biblical authority, once you no longer trust the Bible Mm. and you become your own authority. And I think that was going on back there, actually, when Steve preached when I was 18. I look back now, largely it was Steve. It was great stories, funny jokes, bouncing around, big hair. Um, The Bible was secondary, but there was a lot of Jesus. Now Jesus has got sort of you know, being shifted off the stage. There's not the Bible either. And it's just kind of Steve and there's nothing to check that peg. So I really hope the slide doesn't continue, but I could mm. see Steve becoming some kind of sort of functional atheist, humanist, whatever, you know, Jesus already, I think is just a sticker. Mm. Um, and it's very, very sad, mm. but it's a reminder to all of us to make sure, you know, that our foundations are on something, are on something solid, that there is an authority outside of us. Otherwise, goodness knows where you end up. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I remember seeing a video for um, my old church in Brighton, which was used to be called Church of Christ the King, is now called Emmanuel. It was the kind of mothership of New Frontiers, a big charismatic evangelical movement in the UK. And when it was sort of getting going, I, there's a video somewhere on a Channel 4 documentary about that church. And Channel 4 weren't being like, well, entirely negative about it because it was edgy at the time. It was probably the early 90s, pushing 
the boundaries of uh you know away from traditional approaches to church kind of you know more relaxed worship style that at that time channel four the kind of edgier british channel of the time um were happy to talk about this as a cool approach to faith that was sort of ruffling feathers and they had i think steve chalk it may be steve chalk did one of the songs of praise uh, when they did the songs of praise episode on that church as well that was bbc he introduced it and was again channeling this kind of this is the edgy this is the front line this is where mission is really happening so he was a happening evangelical of the time and he liked talking about this but in a way now i look back on it i think i think you liked it because it was edgy and you want you want to be doing things that are edgy that are interesting to the culture which is not in itself always entirely bad but it's bad if that's the main point as you say Andy the biblical authority where that's kind of shifted to the side and actually it's the edginess per se the cultural um communication per se which is yeah. the real driver and that will always come unstuck in the end you can you can last for a while and drag a load of people you know a load of merry band of people come come after you because it sounds really cool like you're holding these two things together of the, the kind of centrality of the gospel and the culture but really yeah. Um, unless you, you're really anchored, you're not going to last long, are you? No. Michael, the, the, irony, the irony is, the irony is, and then you know, I know Michael's got so much to kind of say on this. See, I'll tell you the irony that gets me, Aaron, here is that I think, yeah, you can carry people with you, but actually, you eventually become not even countercultural. And so, yeah. the, for me, the irony with Steve is there was a time he was countercultural. He was countercultural when he first began to preach the gospel, and he did things like Christmas cracker restaurants. We got yo youth groups running restaurants at Christmas. Hmm. Was, there was uh, Christmas cracker radio stations. I mean, what an insanely brilliant idea to get youth groups to run Christian radio stations. I mean, insane idea. It worked. I was involved in all of that. It was so exciting and, and edgy. Hmm. But then, when you just become edgy, eventually, of course, what happens is the culture moves on and on and on, hmm. and you're no longer edgy. So now. You look at Steve Chalk's Twitter feed to so just pick on Steve. We could equally say the same of, of others, but we're Michael, using for example, okay. yeah. um, <laughs> it doesn't look much different from any kind of largely left wing progressive Twitter feed. Jesus isn't mentioned. I, did, I remember last year, actually, I think it was last year, I got bored and went, I went through a few months of his tweets going, okay, how often does he actually talk about Jesus? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to start judging him on how he talks about it because that's subjective. I'll just see how often Jesus is mentioned. And I literally went through about six or seven months of tweets, and, the, and then the answer was zero. Um, all kinds of other things, but I could equally have been reading Owen Jones at the Guardian, or I could have been reading, you know, any journalist writing for the New mm-hmm. Statesman, or any kind of vaguely left-wing politician. It was all mm-hmm. this justice issue, that justice issue, mm-hmm. and the other. And I'm reminded of um, sorry to bang on here, but I'm reminded one of my heroes is a guy called Leslie Newbigin. And for folks mm-hmm. who haven't read Newbigin, he, I mean, he's utterly brilliant, um, kind of uh, missionary and uh, Anglican theologian a few decades ago. What was interesting, if you read his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, it's an amazing book on how to engage the kind yeah. of world we find ourselves in today, actually. He's a bit of a prophet. Mm-hmm. He grew up in a quite a liberal Christian tradition, and he got involved in his 20s in going, I think it was to Wales from memory, and doing a lot of sort of social justice trips where they went to poor communities in Wales and, and tried to help people out, particularly help, you know, uh, set up schemes for the unemployed and everything. And he describes how he got cross fr- frustrated that changing people's lives didn't seem to come that dramatically. Mm-hmm. And he describes lying awake in his bed one night and having a sort of epiphany where he suddenly realizes, he puts it in his autobiography, he says, I suddenly realized with a shock that people needed more than just table tennis and a free cup of tea. They actually needed Jesus. And as he reflects on that, he realized that he did too. And he almost sort of has a reconversion experience. But he Mm. went from social justice to to Jesus. He never gave up the social justice. When he goes off and becomes a missionary in India, Mm. you know, the church network that he set up became famous for feeding the poor and running schools and hospitals and everything. Mm. But he never lost the gospel part and the Jesus part. The two Mm. went together. 
Steve has gone the other way. I think Steve started yeah. talking largely about Jesus. The justice bit was a bit smaller. It grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And then the Jesus bit fell off the back of the bus. Mm. I'm going to jump on at some point, return, respond to something there, but I'm going to let Michael in. Otherwise, this will be the silence, Michael. We're going to get hashtags about, you know, let Michael Hi, out. Mike. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah. I feel like we've got 12 minutes and 20 seconds into a podcast. And, so, uh, it was the good stuff, Michael. You've had 12 minutes to think about it. We're, we're waiting for it. Drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> My wife would be very impressed that I managed to go 12 minutes and 30 seconds now with that saying. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I guess two things that are on my mind. One was, you know, it's very easy for those of us who aren't left-wing leaning Guardian readers to point the finger and I guess the opposite danger is that Christians can just regurgitate the spectator or the telegraph. Mm. And we don't want to suggest that the answer to becoming a woke Christian is just to become a right-wing Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we want to be thoroughly Christian, which will be countercultural on both mm-hmm. sides of the political divide. I guess the other question, and, and this is kind of a hypothetical question, because I've not spoken to Steve about it, but the question is, what is the motive behind that? We can see what's happened. And I'm saying this as an evangelist, speaking about someone else who would have at least at one stage called themselves, I think, an evangelist, Steve Chalk. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether the, one of the dangers is there is a good motive as an evangelist is we want to make the gospel as appealing as legitimately possible um, in our culture. We want to overcome the barriers that people have to the gospel. We really want people to discover Jesus. That's a really good passion. Hmm. But there's a danger that that then becomes, therefore, I want to change like starts you know airbrushing out certain aspects of biblical teaching because it, it's unpalatable unpalatable to the culture we're in and so what starts out as a genuine motive you know i want to help people discover jesus mm. can end up being i end up becoming unfaithful to scripture in the process mm. and i i find that personally quite challenging so i just think you know there's that tension between wanting to not put unnecessary stumbling blocks in people's way mm at the same time not wanting to be unfaithful to scripture and i think one of the answers to that is to have a deep deeply strong conviction that that god is good and that therefore if the bible teaches something this is good like you know sometimes i think christians go around with this feeling of like you know you've got the gospel and you've got the small prints all those things we don't like to say like hell and judgments and whatever whereas actually i think we just need to work out how to communicate biblical sexuality or hell or judgments in ways that help people to see the goodness of the gospel Um, Rather than just saying these are the this is the small print and we'll kind of yeah. ignore this because it's yeah. not very palatable. Yeah, that's really good, Michael. That that was worth the uh, the twelve minutes thirty one second wait. Yeah, that's it. Yes, you done. Um, and it's interesting. The the other the kind of I, I always seem to find to, to add footnotes anyway. But I, uh, <laughs> to your point, so um, I think the we also have to proclaim what goodness is, don't we? Because yes. it's interesting how we can say look, let me show you how God is good. Let me show you how the gospel is good and how sexual ethics in the Bible are good and and even God's justice, which leads to wrath and judgment, is good. Um, And we haven't done any, often done any work to ask the person what they think goodness even is. They just think, oh, it's just the stuff that I like sometimes. It's the stuff that I recognize as being not bad. But then increasingly we live in a culture where good and evil blend together so much. We watch Netflix documentaries where where characters are a blend of them and we like that we we identify with the kind of ambiguity and the fuzziness um and we certainly then and then christians reread things it goes back to the biblical authority problem with christian leaders it, they'll read back things which our culture would say is bad and just say well 
you know, mm. that can't, there'll be some other explanation for why God seemed to say that or do that. And I'm often in debates with people about this who, who often are evangelists and, and really mm. passionate. And they mm. end up in a really weird place where they almost become um, functionally Marcionite, which is a heresy basically where uh, Marcion was a figure in the kind of patristic era who believed in the kind of early centuries of the church, mm-hmm. who believed in um, there being a, essentially a different God in the Old and New Testament. So all of the wrath and judgment type stuff um, in the Old Testament is not the same. It's not applicable. We can cut off the Old Testament um, and there's, there's complexities to it, but essentially that's it. It's like saying, I want the kind of good, loving, peace, peaceable, on my terms, mm-hmm. Jesus type God. I mean, that neglects the fact, obviously, that God is, Jesus causes enough problems for hell and all these other things anyway. The New Testament authors add to the problem if you're trying to get rid of the wrath, basically. Um, we just don't talk about those passages that much. Mm. But it does speak into that problem, doesn't it, of us getting embarrassed by certain parts of Scripture. Mm. And our, our approach to biblical authority can be lip service, especially if, especially mm. with evangelical leaders, can't it? Mm. And I think just just on that, I know we kind of slight digression to a PS to the PS to what I originally said. Yeah. But, um, but on that, I think that is a really helpful point. It just reminds me of a conversation I remember having a few years ago with a student who was asking questions about the Old Testament and wars in the Old Testament. And part of my answer was trying to explain the idea that actually this was there was a sense of justice here, that God was judging the evil of those right. nations. But actually, one of the reasons why that answer wasn't helpful is that I was speaking to someone who it became clear in further conversation thought that any sense of retributive justice was wrong, that mm. justice can only be restorative. Mm. And if justice didn't restore the offender, it shouldn't happen. Mm. And because they had that kind of conviction, that worldview, yeah. whatever I said wasn't going to be very helpful. So actually, we had to kind of go down, like you say, to the question of what is good. Mm. And but I think also because people are creating the image of God, I think if we dig down and do hard work, we can actually help people hopefully see. You know, in that situation, it's saying, well, okay, you know, so you'd never ever say that you know someone should be punished, like full stop, um, for what they've done. But actually, when you kind of dug down and you started to put some real life situations in, like actually no, in that situation, I think I would want justice to be done, yeah. even if it didn't lead to the restoration of the yeah. offender. Justice still needed to be done. Yeah. But I think you've got to ask the question. Yeah, we live in a society that's reevaluated what's good and what's not, yeah. and we need to start kind of doing the groundwork beforehand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to go down the the justice rabbit trail, <laughs> but then we love rabbit trailing. That's true. I mean, I do. No, I know. I mean, probably like you, I've had lots of conversations with folks around that and of course one of the things mm-hmm. i found fascinating is if you do only use a restorative model of justice of course the weakness there is anything is possible mm-hmm. uh, you know the famous analogy writer saying you know if you're caught speeding and the police yank you out of the car and chainsaw both your legs off that's <laughs> actually once it's restorative justice you'll be back <laughs> you will never speed again uh, that crime will never happen again we have we have you know we have restored your character <laughs> would say hang on a minute is shouldn't the punishment fit the crime yeah. ah ah mm-hmm. That's interesting because when you have, you know, that 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 sense of retributive, mm. at least then that leads us into, um, you know, some limits on things. And I remember sort of C.S. Lewis famously saying that you know the worst kind of totalitarian societies are those that exist for the for the benefit mm. of their um their citizens. But you know, back to the kind of woke slide mm-hmm. we we've talked about him. And there's so many different themes on there. I mean, I've one often wondered, and it's 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 hard because we're now we are now psychoanalyzing people. But particularly in the social media age, because one of the themes I think are part of the gaps, right, is that social media has done a lot of damage here. Is there a sense that the, the want to be liked begins trumping everything else? And 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 I was saying before the show, we slowly hit record, right? Not 
we are also guilty of this. You know, this is a classic login URI spec in somebody else's that, you know, you tweet a couple of things. You put up a, a nice Bible verse on your Twitter feed, gets four likes. You put up something else a bit edgier, or it gets 10 likes. Oh, okay, I'll do more of that and less mm. of that. And the moment that you start playing to the crowd like that, it's very easy, I think, to almost without realizing it at first, so I don't. So take take the Steve Chalk stuff. I don't. I genuinely do not think Steve sat there one night and went, "You know what? I've had enough of Jesus. I've had enough. He's coming off my Twitter feed. He's not mm-hmm. going on there." Mm-hmm. But I do think what happened, or possibly happened, is that he does his, you know, the more wokey social justicey LGBT kind of stuff, and he gets lots of likes. Mm-hmm. And the Guardian say nice things about him. The BBC referred to him as, you know, yeah. trendy, trend, trendy Baptist minister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And suddenly you're getting more attention than the old-fashioned mm-hmm. gospel, more sort of, you know, gospel. Yeah stuff mm. and so you end up self-selecting and therefore yeah. it, maybe there's a bigger issue here for mm. all of us not just the ones who've gone woke as christian leaders of being willing to stand for the truth mm. and be wise in what we what we say in the public square mm. even if it doesn't equal popularity yeah that's mm. a really good point it, it uh, old michael jump in then yeah no, no, i'm just going to jump on uh, and i think therefore the flip side is you know if you're living in a very secular world where you're interacting you know, on a daily basis with the secular media and so on, the desire for popularity will probably take you down that line. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, it's very easy for Christians who are not in that environment, who are working in kind of a little kind of theological bubble of evangelicalism. But actually our desire for popularity is just to kind of, <laughs> you know, tick the boxes of theological soundness, not necessarily because we're doing it from the heart, but also, you know, in a, in a way, because I know that will get the likes. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're all prone to wanting to be liked. And like you say, actually, we want to be passionate about truth, passionate about Christ, not just passionate about appealing to our clientele, whether our clientele are, you know, the secular media or um, conservative evangelicals. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we want to to point towards Christ for Christ's sake, mm-hmm. um, not because that will gain the popularity that we yeah, want. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the issues with, I mean, that certainly is a danger. I think the issue, mm-hmm. I, I think, with the wokeness, obviously, is... is is um, particularly leaning to the left, isn't it? And so you're right that we don't want to only just lean to the right mm. for the sake of it or any motivation that isn't, you know, Christ honouring is, mm. is going to be a problem. But I think there's a general sense in in this wokeness thing. Well, I guess we have, mm. we have to define wokeness. I guess you'd say um, it would be the um, the new, I guess, neo, neo-liberalism almost. That's, that's probably not the right term either because that's a kind of political term, but... A, sen- a sense of um, a new brand of li- linking into kind of intersectionality, which we talked about, this sense of gender, um, sexuality and race issues, mm. victimhood kind of all coming together and um, that those issues kind of clouding the judgment mm. over objective reality in loads of areas. I mean, that's not the best mm. definition of it, but wokeness in general would be that those issues are that are pertinent currently within western culture start basically dominating everything and and therefore certain there are certain bad guys and it normally would be a white straight male that would be the problem there or maybe a religious person um in uh, as, as previously in the new atheist sort of furor wokeness almost replaces that um that furor against the bad guy and i think um the church has become wokeified, as people have said many times. There's a new book by Owen Straken, but I think people pronounce him Australian for some reason. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Um, Christianity and Wokeness, which uh, I've not read it, but I've seen him tweeting a lot about this. And he would be someone who surprised people because over the last few years, he's sort of drifted a bit more leaning to the right when he was pretty central 
uh, on lots of issues. And, and it's a new book that just, I think, just come out maybe only a few weeks ago. Um, but it's something that, yeah, he, he's trying to diagnose just how big a problem this is. And in America, it's an even bigger one. And so I think when we talk about Christian leaders, I think something you mentioned earlier, Andy, that love of the the playing to the, or both of you mentioning it, really, the playing to the crowd thing, it's anthropocentric, which is to introduce a, another term, which would mean human-centered, basically, um, that we are drawn towards what people do and what people like, what people create, rather than our primary audience of one, as it were, um, our divine or the, the person we're really trying to live our life for and glorify and get who, who we've given our life to, which is God. Mm-hmm. And so if you're living with fear of God rather than fear of people, I think it it, it sets yeah. you up in a very different way for how you approach mm-hmm. some of these issues, doesn't it? I think it does. I think the other issue I'd add very quickly there as well, because I know I know time is 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 against ours, but there's not just the way God fits into this. I think there's also there's a there's an anthropological question about about our view of humanity here. I remember being very struck by something that, that Tim Keller uh, once wrote, where he said, you know, if you've changed your view as a Christian on on LGBT you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm. You've changed your view on sexuality because you've met a nice gay person. That means before you met mm-hmm. them, you were a bigot. Mm-hmm. He went and said, you know, the reason I hold the view of marriage I do is not because I'm homophobic, he said, yeah. but because I believe that's that's what the Bible teaches and it's God's best sexuality. And that describes Steve Chalk because mm-hmm. Steve, uh, what changed his view was meeting a nice gay couple. And the ironic thing is one of the member half members of that couple i knew because i was at theological college with them and bless them they were the most theologically inept student i've ever met they were lovely um but could you know sort of could barely find their way on the bible let alone theology and so they, you know they used to blunder into steve's church a few years later and they're just one of the nicest people you could hope to, hope to meet and i can absolutely see steve going oh what a lovely person but then that he would change his view mm-hmm. on the basis of meeting individuals like that with all due respect to steve that means his anthropology was pretty screwy because beforehand is that he was holding the view on marriage because he was a bigot, mm. quite quite frankly. And I'd want to I'd want to call him back to you know not merely the biblical view of God and who God is, but I think also challenge Steve on you know the, the anthropological view there in the Bible that actually of going that we love people with their with their sin. We're not we're not called to sit there from the sidelines and throw stones at people. We are called to do what Jesus did and roll up our sleeves and get in there with the broken and the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all that other you know whatever the contemporary equivalent of those those categories are is so i think that's there's an issue that's going on there and i, and I think some christian leaders who have gone woke i don't know why i'm doing scare quotes because we're not recording the, um, <laughs> the video here but i did little quote marks in my fingers or maybe i'm doing rabbit impressions honey rabbits that's right I'm rabbits, exactly um, i think some christian leaders who have mm. gone down this woke slope i actually think there's a sort of there's a sort of suppressed guilt here there's a sort of sense yeah. of gosh i was a bad bad person i had all kinds of bad attitudes now i'm going to come out and virtue signal by tweeting mm. the right thing, whereas a healthy view of the gospel mm. gives us the right view of God and mm. the right view of humankind. I'm not saying that I or you guys get that mm. right, but when you have scripture in the right place, you have that corrective that you can yeah. keep coming back to yeah. that reminds us, okay, maybe I have got the, you know, perhaps I am being unfair on how I'm yeah. judging somebody here. Perhaps I haven't mm. got God at the, the center. But once, like Steve and others have done, once the Bible goes out the window, then you have nothing and you're just drifting in circles. And so it's important when, that we're not playing games with scripture either. Cause I think you, know, Michael mentioned earlier, people can easily, people who've been conservative and have ticked those doctrinal boxes over the years for the wrong reason. Sometimes they, they're also in danger because they haven't got the heart level conviction. And if they're trying to do to impress conservatives with X, Y, Z, they'll be just as likely to try to impress liberals if the game changes or if the yeah. money changes or the popularity changes. And that's a, a real issue there. So I wondered, 
I mean, obviously, we've not got too much time, but I'll let you guys throw, throw, throw one more thing to you. Would be is do you think there's a difference here in how in the in how you get to these issues, like how you even embrace what biblical authority really means? So I think Andy mentioned earlier Leslie Newbegin as an example here of someone who came from a more liberal place, saw the poverty of that gospel, as it were, and then embraced. Oh my goodness, it's about biblical authority. It's about the gospel, not without losing the heart of the mm-hmm. kind of holistic sense mm-hmm. of how the gospel impacts people's lives mm-hmm. and advocates for justice and these other things. Um, I, I, I'm speaking from personally that one of the reasons that I am so <clears throat> sort of vocal about challenging the, the kind of emerging church deconstructive type voices, like we've mentioned, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, because I've mm-hmm. seen so many friends give up the faith altogether. Um, as a result of that, the sl- slide down there because they were pretty down the line, but they didn't really think it through. They were they were kind of evangelical, but they, they weren't robustly evangelical. And then they found this wonderful haven, this new found land where there's creativity and you could be a little bit more edgy or you could say this or that. And suddenly they were just carried away with the fairies and they never came back. Uh, and I've seen that as someone who, you know, who enjoyed watching Rob Bell videos back in the day and, and seeing how interesting and creative um, and imaginative they were. But then you see where he went in the end, and, and it's a, a clear example of who, how, <laughs> who not to follow and the, the kind of aesthetics and the communication leading the way. But as, as you mentioned earlier, relating to Steve Chalk, Andy, the substance wasn't there. So is there a difference in how you get where you are on this journey that you can see both sides, but you, you sort of realize, oh, my goodness, how important this is? I'm not sure whether I'm exactly answering the question, but it came into my head, so I'll say it. Um, <laughs> but, but I guess on that, um, what was I going to say now? So it's just got out of my head as quickly as it went into my head. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a perfect political answer. I'm not going to answer your question. Quiet for the 14 minutes, Michael, and then and then some wisdom will. will <laughs> I've only said two things in this whole podcast. <laughs> this, this, this is stopped. where you can go and make yourself some sourdough. You know, do a little. Awesome. Come back, Michael will have. Distracted, a, distracted by the you must have gone I think what I was trying to say is come back into my head. I'll say it quickly. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> I what I was trying to say was that I think if you are in an evangelical church, you can kind of know what the evangelical views are on certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that you know I'm against gay marriage. I know I'm against this or that or whatever. Um, but actually, how many have really thought through and grappled from Scripture, or could actually defend from Scripture, or we just know that's the view that we're to agree with? I think it's very easy, isn't it? As we go around, we, we know the boxes we need to tick, but how thoroughly have we come to those mm. convictions by studying scripture? And I think mm. it's a really helpful thing to actually help people not just know what the issues are, but to know why those issues are the way they are. Um, and we mentioned Keller a moment ago, Tim Keller. I think in many ways, for me, he stands not as a perfect example because Jesus is the only perfect example, but, but as a good example of a Christian leader who's had prominence and has actually, I think, you know, in one sense, got flack from both sides. He gets flack, obviously, from kind of woke Christians on the one hand, because he's far too conservative. Yeah. But he also gets flack from some conservative Christians because he yeah. talks about justice. And the moment they hear the word justice, they think he's woke. Mm. And I think getting that line where he's saying, actually, I'm going to be faithful to scripture. I'm not going to appeal to try and you know, gain the popularity of one camp or the other camp, but I'm going to seek to teach the Bible. Mm. But also, I think what he does really helpfully, and he talks about how when he first went to New York, he, he spent lots of time meeting up with non-Christian New Yorkers to study the Bible with them. And so one of the things he learned to do was to communicate scripture in a way that was engaging and responded to the questions and objections of the secular society in which he was trying to minister. And I think that's really helpful. So we're, we're 
getting to grips with scripture, but we're not just doing it in a little bubble. We're doing it in a context where people can ask questions and disagree. And then we're learning to respond to those, not just with our own ideas, but to be able to respond to that with what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's one, you know, he's an exa- in- Keller is an interesting example of someone who's managed to hold the line quite well. I mean, I, I've sometimes thought, you know, there, there might be people who come after Keller though, who, mm-hmm. who, who like, the nice sounding stuff because he's a little bit more gentle and who yeah. won't have those convictions that he actually mm. has that that's that mm. would be my only issue there that mm. i think when you don't um get in trouble in the in the on both sides as mm. jesus did mm. i think he does a bit but i don't know if he gets enough in trouble on the other side <laughs> Not that that's the point but like it's just that it's what people follow what they hear they go oh i love what he says about this that's what I love. Mm. And I've often spoken, again, people, when, you, when, you, when you chat to people who you know already on that scale, who are kind of woke, mm. who are further left than Tim Keller, mm. but who love mm. Tim Keller. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know what, what yeah, you like, but you really, they don't like someone to the right of him, whatever. Because yeah. Yeah. I mean, two, two, two quick thoughts there that just suddenly occurred to me as you said that. I mean, it make an interesting point. I mean, firstly, is the, is the fact that, um, you know, I think people forget that actually Keller came from a bit of a wokey background. You know, his testimony he described when he yeah, yeah. college he went to in mm. the States. He was, I mean, not, not a crazy liberal, but he was on the more liberal mm. kind of end of things. Mm. And he mm. went to a college where people, are, you know, you know, the lecturers from the front are saying, you know, everything is relative. There's no such thing mm. as truth, the whole postmodern mm. turn. But they kept banging on about social justice. Mm. And then one day, um, you know, Keller, I think, talks about, you know, putting his hand up in class or whatever, asking a question to one of his profs and saying, hey, you know, everything's relative, right? Yeah. Oh, so presumably social justice is too. And being told, oh, no, 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 don't be so daft. Of course it isn't. And he said that's when the lie was suddenly exposed. And that I think, you know, that and a few other experiences at college, he he really rediscovered the the depth of the Christian faith. Mm. And that's interesting. So that's, I think, maybe why he speaks well to this culture. Mm. But then the other thing that I found fascinating is you've got a whole bunch, Mm. and this is a whole topic for another show maybe, Mm. but a whole bunch of, for one of a better word, public intellectuals Mm. who I think are increasingly talking about that, you know, the, the relevance and the importance of the Christian faith to Western culture. I mean, we've mentioned Doug Murray on this show, Niall Ferguson, Tom Holland. Um, the, the list goes on. Charles Moore. Uh, there would be be many others. I've just mentioned Nen actually off the top of my my head. But um, but you know, if you if you if you dig around, there's a whole growing number of them. And what's fascinating, they obviously have, they've looked at the fruits of Christianity and got me quite like a lot of this, you know, freedom and, and human value mm-hmm. and all the institutions that Christianity has created. But they haven't got the power behind it. And so, mm-hmm. like some of like you know. You know, Niall Ferguson, I mean, I'm reading a piece on Hit by Him recently where, you know, where where somebody was engaging with him and saying, Mm. you know, he has got to move beyond saying Christianity is merely saying something politically. It has to be saying something personally. Mm. And it suddenly struck me. I think you read people like Steve Chalk and others. And ironically, they've ended up in the same basket from the other direction Mm. um, of going, we love all the social stuff. Christianity Mm. gives us a language Mm. that we can talk about compassion. And, and 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 justice. I was just engaging with someone on, on Twitter before we began, who was saying, "But you know, when I read Steve's talks, t- uh, tweets, they make me think about about compassion, and that makes me think about Jesus." And you, on the one hand, I want to go, "That's fantastic," but Jesus ju- isn't just about compassion. He's not just about mm. going, "Oh, there, there, isn't it wonderful?" Mm. But that message of the gospel that actually we are radically broken, mm. and that actually we need radically putting back together again, or injustice mm. is never going to be over. As Jesus said, "The poor will always be with you." I think it's fantastic. It's fascinating that, that, that Steve has ended up as sort of a bedfellow mm. with the likes of Douglas Murray and others, who ironically would completely disagree with him mm. on his stuff on social justice and, and wokeness. So we live in this very, very strange world right now. Yeah, that's so. That's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, yeah, we, we've sort of travailed various uh, various people here and, and various um, 
issues which relate to this. I think this is it's a really prominent one issue to kind of have in mind. I think it's something that we need to be aware of, not necessarily because we're looking out to shame leaders, but I do think, you know, someone like Steve Chalk, it's it's a good example to look at someone who over the the course of a of a you know a generation has moved so swiftly and taken quite a few people with him. And there, are, and there are other leaders doing similar things, playing with certain things, playing with certain attitudes. As we keep coming back to on the show, I think going back to the centrality of the gospel uh, and the centrality of the authority of Scripture, Scripture being above your head. You know, I've always been really impacted when I was at a conference many years ago, and there's a South African preacher called Steve Van Ryan who asked, when I was in a bit of a more emerging-y type phase as a student, and he, and he asked us all to do that thing, you know, stand up and put the Bible above your head and repeat after me and talk about that this is over me and that's kind of a classic reformation um truth that the script the scripture tells us what not only what to do but what we are as christians um it is the kind of seat the heart of of the gospel coming from scripture and that authority is so vital and we can pretend we have a handle on that when really we're trying to get out of it and i think that's the temptation for leaders especially in a social media age so we we can learn from these cautionary tales of those prominent evangelicals who've gone this direction and then um we hope not to follow them michael what do you what do you finish us off here there's one verse that came to my mind as we're having this whole discussion is 1 timothy 4 where um paul says watch your life and your doctrine closely and i guess particularly speaking to a christian leader um as as 1 timothy is and there's that challenge isn't there that that actually there are two great temptations for the christian leader one is in terms of their life, um, the temptation to, to mess up some spectacular um, way with, with sin, um, to drift away um, in that way, but also to watch a doctrine mm. in terms of another way to actually mess up as a Christian leader yeah. is to depart from the authority of Scripture, to depart from, from Jesus ultimately, mm. um, because we desire popularity you know, for whatever motive. Mm. And I think as Christian leaders, we need to be really aware of both of those dangers mm. Um, and I don't know, certainly when I was growing up, I used to, I went to a church that taught the Bible very regularly and going from the New Testament. So I was always amazed how much it went on about false teaching in the New Testament. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, why is all this stuff about false teaching? I mean, that was like a first century problem, wasn't it? Like it's not a 21st century problem or a 20th century problem because I'm that old now. Uh, but like, actually now I look back and I think, actually, no, it is, it is a real issue and we need to be aware of it. Um, and there's a real danger and we don't want to be kind of like you know well I'll never be like that actually we need to check our hearts don't we as we mm-hmm. said on a daily basis for those of us who are in positions of Christian ministry mm-hmm. um, are we just ticking the popularity box and to, to appeal to whichever camp we want to appeal to or are we really being grounded in scripture mm-hmm. and seeking to ultimately as you say live before the audience of one and that's not to say we don't care about our audience therefore but I think when I am most concerned about pleasing the Lord, mm. I think I'm also going to be most helpful to the people I'm speaking to. Mm. And when I forget about speaking to please God and I'm more worried about trying to please the audience, ultimately I'm not really going to be helping them mm. in the way that I think is mm. what they ultimately need. That's really helpful. Thank you. A great, great um, note to finish on. And of course, so I hope we hope you found this helpful, those of you listening. Um, and you know, if, if any of us, um, if, if myself, Aaron Edwards or Michael Otts, or Andy Bannister ever does go woke, you can just send us uh, a copy of this episode and say, look, <laughs> taste your own medicine, you fools. Um, and we hope that it's been instructive to you. And as always, we're happy for you to you know, like and subscribe and send and share 
this if you found it helpful to kind of encourage others, especially on this kind of issue. Maybe maybe you might want to send it to someone you feel is on, on, on the slide themselves, or maybe you just want to send it to someone who's thinking through these issues. But as always, we really appreciate your support on the podcast, and thanks, as always, for listening, and we will uh, you'll hear from us next time. Farewell. <laughs>